Section 39 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1F, Section 39, Chapter 70, Part 4. The smallest approach towards the introduction of popery must, in the present disposition of the people, have afforded reason of jealousy, much more so wide a step as that of dispensing with the test, the sole security which the nation, being disappointed of the exclusion bill, found provided against those dreaded innovations. Yet was the king resolute to persevere in his purpose, and having failed in bringing over the Parliament, he made an attempt, with more success, for establishing his dispensing power by a verdict of the judges. Sir Edward Hales, a new proselyte, had accepted a commission of colonel, and directions were given his coachman to prosecute him for the penalty of five hundred pounds, which the law, establishing the test, had granted to informers. By this feigned action the king hoped, both from the authority of the decision and the reason of the thing, to put an end to all questions with regard to his dispensing power. It could not be expected that the lawyers appointed to plead against Hales would exert great force on that occasion. But the cause was regarded with such anxiety by the public, that it has been thoroughly canvassed in several elaborate discourses, and could men divest themselves of prejudice, there want not sufficient materials on which to form a true judgment. The claim and exercise of the dispensing power is allowed to be very ancient in England, and though it seems at first to have been copied from papal usurpations, it may plainly be traced up as high as the reign of Henry the Third. In the feudal governments, men were more anxious to secure their private property than to share in the public administration, and provided no innovations were attempted on their rights and possessions, the care of executing the laws and ensuring general safety was, without jealousy, entrusted to the sovereign. Penal statutes were commonly intended to arm the prince with more authority for that purpose, and being in the main calculated for promoting his influence as first magistrate, there seemed no danger in allowing him to dispense with their execution in such particular cases as might require an exception or indulgence. That practice had so much prevailed that the Parliament itself had more than once acknowledged this prerogative of the Crown particularly during the reign of Henry V, when they enacted the law against aliens, and also when they passed the statute of provisors. But though the general tenor of the penal statutes was such as gave the king a superior interest in their execution, beyond any of his subjects, it could not but sometimes happen in a mixed government, that the Parliament would desire to enact laws by which the regal power, in some particulars, even where private property was not immediately concerned, might be regulated and restrained. In the twenty-third of Henry the Sixth, a law of this kind was enacted, prohibiting any man from serving in a county as sheriff above a year, 
and a clause was inserted by which the king was disabled from granting a dispensation. Plain reason might have taught that this law, at least, should be exempted from the king's prerogative, but as the dispensing power still prevailed in other cases, it was soon able, aided by the servility of the courts of judicature, even to overpower this statute, which the legislature had evidently intended to secure against violation. In the reign of Henry the Seventh, the case was brought to a trial before all the judges in the exchequer chamber, and it was decreed that, notwithstanding the strict clause above mentioned, the king might dispense with the statute. He could first, it was alleged, dispense with the prohibitory clause, and then with the statute itself. This opinion of the judges, though seemingly absurd, had ever since passed for undoubted law. The practice of continuing the sheriffs had prevailed, and most of the property in England had been fixed by decisions which juries, returned by such sheriffs, had given in the courts of judicature. Many other dispensations of a like nature may be produced, not only such as took place by intervals, but such as were uniformly continued. Thus the law was dispensed with, which prohibited any man from going a judge of assize into his own county, that which rendered all Welshmen incapable of bearing offices in Wales, and that which required every one who received a pardon for felony to find sureties for his good behavior. In the second of James I, a new consultation of all the judges had been held upon a like question. This prerogative of the crown was again unanimously affirmed, and it became an established principle in English jurisprudence, that though the king could not allow of what was morally unlawful, he could permit what was only prohibited by positive statute. Even the jealous House of Commons, who extorted the petition of right from Charles I, made no scruple, by the mouth of Glanville, their manager, to allow of the dispensing power in its full extent. And in the famous trial of ship money, Holborn, the popular lawyer, had freely, and in the most explicit terms, made the same concession. Sir Edward Coke, the great oracle of English law, had not only concurred with all other lawyers in favor of this prerogative, but seems even to believe it so inherent in the crown that an act of Parliament itself could not abolish it, and he particularly observes that no law can impose such a disability of enjoying offices as the king may not dispense with, because the king, from the law of nature, has a right to the service of all his subjects. This particular reason, as well as all the general principles, is applicable to the question of the test nor can the dangerous consequence of granting dispensations in that case be ever allowed to be pleaded before a court of judicature. Every prerogative of the crown, it may be said, admits of abuse. Should the king pardon all criminals, law must be totally dissolved. Should he declare and continue perpetual war against all nations, inevitable ruin must ensue. Yet these powers are entrusted to the sovereign. Though this reasoning seems founded on such principles as are usually admitted by lawyers, the people had entertained such violent prepossessions against the use which James here made of his prerogative, that he was obliged, before he brought on Hale's cause, to displace four of the judges, 
Jones, Montague, Charlton, and Neville, and even Sir Edward Herbert, the Chief Justice, though a man of acknowledged virtue, yet, because he here supported the pretensions of the crown, was exposed to great and general reproach. Men deemed a dispensing to be in effect the same with a repealing power, and they could not conceive that less authority was necessary to repeal than to enact any statute. If one penal law was dispensed with, any other might undergo the same fate. And by what principle could even the laws which define property be afterwards secured from violation? The Test Act had ever been conceived the great barrier of the established religion under a popish successor. As such it had been insisted on by the Parliament, as such granted by the King, as such, during the debates with regard to the exclusion, recommended by the Chancellor. By what magic, by what chicane of law, is it now annihilated and rendered of no validity? These questions were everywhere asked and men, straitened by precedents and decisions of great authority, were reduced either to question the antiquity of this prerogative itself, or to assert that even the practice of near five centuries could not bestow on it sufficient authority. It was not considered that the present difficulty or seeming absurdity had proceeded from late innovations introduced into the government. Ever since the beginning of this century, the Parliament had, with a laudable zeal, been acquiring powers and establishing principles favorable to law and liberty. The authority of the Crown had been limited in many important particulars, and penal statutes were often calculated to secure the Constitution against the attempts of ministers, as well as to preserve general peace and repress crimes and immoralities. A prerogative, however, derived from very ancient and almost uniform practice, the dispensing power, still remained, or was supposed to remain, with the crown, sufficient in an instant to overturn this whole fabric, and to throw down all fences of the Constitution. If this prerogative, which carries on the face of it such strong symptoms of an absolute authority in the prince, had yet in ancient times subsisted with some degree of liberty in the subject, this fact only proves that scarcely any human government, much less one erected in rude and barbarous times, is entirely consistent and uniform in all its parts. But to expect that the dispensing power could, in any degree, be rendered compatible with those accurate and regular limitations which had of late been established, and which the people were determined to maintain, was a vain hope. And though men knew not upon what principles they could deny that prerogative, they saw that, if they would preserve their laws and constitution, there was an absolute necessity for denying, at least for abolishing it. The revolution alone, which soon succeeded, happily put an end to all these disputes, by means of it a more uniform edifice was at last erected. The monstrous inconsistence, so visible between the ancient Gothic parts of the fabric and the recent plans of liberty, was fully corrected, and to their mutual felicity king and people were finally taught to know their proper boundaries. Whatever topics lawyers might find to defend James's dispensing power, the nation thought it dangerous, if not fatal, to liberty, 
and his resolution of exercising it may on that account be esteemed no less alarming than if the power had been founded on the most recent and most flagrant usurpation it was not likely that an authority which had been assumed through so many obstacles would in his hands lie long idle and unemployed four catholic lords were brought into the privy council powis arundel bellasis and dover halifax finding that notwithstanding his past merits he possessed no real credit or authority became refractory in his opposition and his office of privy seal was given to arundel the king was open as well as zealous in the desire of making converts and men saw plainly that the only way to acquire his affection and confidence was by a sacrifice of their religion sunderland some time after scrupled not to gain favor at this price rochester the treasurer though the king's brother-in-law yet because he refused to give this instance of complaisance was turned out of his office the treasury was put in commission and bellasis was placed at the head of it all the courtiers were disgusted even such as had little regard to religion the dishonor as well as distrust attending renegades made most men resolve at all hazards to adhere to their ancient faith in scotland james's zeal for proselytism was more successful the earls of murray perth and melford were brought over to the court religion and the two latter noblemen made use of a very courtly reason for their conversion they pretended that the papers found in the late king's cabinet had opened their eyes and had convinced them of the preference due to the catholic religion queensbury who showed not the same complaisance fell into total disgrace notwithstanding his former services and the important sacrifices which he had made to the measures of the court these merits could not even ensure him of safety against the vengeance to which he stood exposed his rival perth who had been ready to sink under his superior interest now acquired the ascendant and all the complaints exhibited against him were totally obliterated his faith according to a saying of halifax had made him whole but it was in ireland chiefly that the mask was wholly taken off and that the king thought himself at liberty to proceed to the full extent of his zeal and his violence the duke of ormond was recalled and though the primate and lord granard two protestants still possessed the authority of justices the whole power was lodged in the hands of talbot the general soon after created earl of tyrconnel a man who from the blindness of his prejudices and fury of his temper was transported with the most immeasurable ardor for the catholic cause after the suppression of monmouth's rebellion orders were given by tyrconnel to disarm all the protestants on pretense of securing the public peace and keeping their arms in a few magazines for the use of the militia next the army was new modelled and a great number of officers were dismissed because it was pretended that they or their fathers had served under cromwell and the republic the injustice was not confined to them near three hundred officers more were afterwards broken though many of them had purchased their commissions about four or five thousand private soldiers because they were protestants were dismissed and being stripped even of their regimentals were turned out to starve in the streets 
while these violences were carrying on clarendon who had been named lord lieutenant came over but he soon found that as he had refused to give the king the desired pledge of fidelity by changing his religion he possessed no credit or authority he was even a kind of prisoner in the hands of tyrconnel and as he gave all opposition in his power to the precipitate measures of the catholics he was soon after recalled and tyrconnel substituted in his place the unhappy protestants now saw all the civil authority as well as the military force transferred into the hands of their inveterate enemies inflamed with hereditary hatred and stimulated by every motive which the passion either for power property or religion could inspire even the barbarous banditti were let loose to prey on them in their present defenceless condition a renewal of the ancient massacres was apprehended and great multitudes struck with the best-grounded terror deserted the kingdom and infused into the english nation a dread of those violences to which after some time they might justly from the prevalence of the catholics think themselves exposed all judicious persons of the catholic communion were disgusted with these violent measures and could easily foresee the consequences but james was entirely governed by the rash counsels of the queen and of his confessor father peters a jesuit whom he soon after created a privy counsellor he thought too that as he was now in the decline of life it was necessary for him by hasty steps to carry his designs into execution lest the succession of the princess of orange should overturn all his projects in vain did arundel powis and bellasis remonstrate and suggest more moderate and cautious measures these men had seen and felt during the prosecution of the popish plot the extreme antipathy which the nation bore to their religion and though some subsequent incidents had seemingly allayed that spirit they knew that the settled habits of the people were still the same and that the smallest incident was sufficient to renew the former animosity a very moderate indulgence therefore to the catholic religion would have satisfied them and all attempts to acquire power much more to produce a change of the national faith they deemed dangerous and destructive on the first broaching of the popish plot the clergy of the church of england had concurred in the prosecution of it with the same violence and credulity as the rest of the nation but dreading afterwards the prevalence of republican and presbyterian principles they had been engaged to support the measures of the court and to their assistance chiefly james had owed his succession to the crown finding that all these services were forgotten and that the catholic religion was the king's sole favorite the church had commenced an opposition to court measures and popery was now acknowledged the more immediate danger in order to prevent inflammatory sermons on this popular subject james revived some directions to preachers which had been promulgated by the late king in the beginning of his reign when no design against the national religion was yet formed or at least apprehended but in the present delicate and interesting situation of the church there was little reason to expect that orders founded on no legal authority would be rigidly obeyed by preachers who saw no security to themselves but in preserving the confidence and regard of the people 
Instead of avoiding controversy, according to the king's injunctions, the preachers everywhere declaimed against popery, and among the rest, Dr. Sharp, a clergyman of London, particularly distinguished himself, and affected to throw great contempt on those who had been induced to change their religion by such pitiful arguments as the Romish missionaries could suggest. This topic, being supposed to reflect on the king, gave great offence at court, and positive orders were issued to the Bishop of London, his diocesan, immediately to suspend Sharp, till his majesty's pleasure should be further known. The prelate replied that he could not possibly obey these commands, but that he was not empowered, in such a summary manner, to inflict any punishment even upon the greatest delinquent. But neither this obvious reason, nor the most dutiful submissions, both of the prelate and of Sharp himself, could appease the court. The king was determined to proceed with violence in the prosecution of this affair. The bishop himself he resolved to punish for disobedience to his commands, and the expedient which he employed for that purpose was of a nature at once the most illegal and most alarming. Among all the engines of authority formerly employed by the crown, none had been more dangerous or even destructive to liberty than the court of high commission, which, together with the Star Chamber, had been abolished in the reign of Charles I by Act of Parliament, in which a clause was also inserted prohibiting the erection, in all future times, of that court or any of a like nature. But this law was deemed by James no obstacle, and an ecclesiastical commission was anew issued, by which seven commissioners were vested with full and unlimited authority over the Church of England. End of section 39, chapter 70, part 4. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.